According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs 12, reaching the bottom of the chapter, verses 23 through 28. Proverbs 12, verses 23 through 28. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. If we were to sit here in carnality for the next hour, we would get nothing whatsoever out of the message. So let's, uh, let's get it right, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth. And Father, uh, just amazed that you are as patient and gracious as you are, that you um, feed us faithfully, you teach us, you open our eyes to what we need to see, you watch over us as we uh, go through every test, every time we fail, and then finally if there is a success, Father, that is uh, for your good pleasure, that is all a testimony again to your faithfulness. So Father, we call upon your faithfulness as the Word of God goes forth that it would not be limited in any way by any uh, human weaknesses on the part of the speaker or on the part of the hearer. And Father, uh, minister your truth to your children. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have here point 10 and 11 in our outline. And I believe we wrapped up everything in main point 10. We'll run through it just to make sure, but I think we have. This was the section in verses 17 through 22, the contrast between truth and lies, and uh, the subpoints here, A, B, C, and D, Satan and his brood are liars, a theme that's stressed by Jesus, Paul, and John. And uh, yes, we got through all those, looking at the, uh, the application there. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, and those who deal faithfully are His delight. That was verse 22. Alright, so that then took us to main point 11, verses 23 and following. Chapter 12 concludes with a six-verse poetic structure contrasting the practical benefits to applying personal and public wisdom with the sad consequences for not doing so. And when you reach a, a section that's so practical, as many of them are, uh, I mean the book of Proverbs is almost preaches itself verse by verse because it lays the matters out there in a, in a plain way. And, and that's a great thing, and it's simple, and we can embrace that. The problem is, though, is that unbelievers or other folks, um, they get the wrong idea of what Proverbs are all about, or what church is all about, or, you know, why are we religious people? You know, because, well, you know, that we can be moral, and we can be good, and we can, you know, we can read uh, things like this, and pick up some helpful hints or some tips along the way. And, and it's, it's just diminished to the point that in their estimation, biblical Christianity is, is just, it's just kind of a, uh, it's like a social club or it's like a civic organization. And, and, and there are other things that are comparable that would be just as good. You know, if you want to be a good Buddhist and you can read some Buddhist things or you want to be a good Hindu person and read some good Hindu things, and all religions are basically the same. We want to be nice to one another, right? You know, the Bible's got the golden rule and don't these other texts have something similar? And we want to be nice, we want to be good, and, uh, and so forth. So yeah, don't tell lies. Be a truthful person, okay? 
Well, there's more to wisdom than that. And obviously we've been gleaning that and we've been transformed by the book of Proverbs now for all these lessons. But when we, when we talk about these practical benefits, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Uh, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Okay, now these are all very true and very practical and very pithy, short pithy statements. Um, but uh, hopefully, if you understand what I'm saying, or maybe I'm not getting the point across, we run the risk, because these are so practical and so pithy and so short, we run the risk of confusing uh, the reality for what it is, all right? And we don't want to lose the sense. We don't want to lose the bigger picture behind it, right? That's why I tried in, in the verse on lying, that's why I tried to show that truth versus lie is actually so much bigger than just don't tell lies. It's so much bigger because it encompasses that angelic conflict between the Father and Satan, between Jesus Christ as the, the faithful and true and Antichrist as uh, the, the agent of, of global you know, falsehood in the, in the tribulation. That there are so much larger themes at work. All right, well, enough on that. Um, so, starting with verse 23, a prudent man conceals knowledge but the heart of fools proclaims folly. And yes, prudence knows when to keep the mouth shut. All right? Prudence knows when to keep the mouth shut. And uh, it's practical. It's, uh, it's very useful for us. If, uh, um, and maybe I'll make my own application here and just keep my mouth shut instead of rambling on and on and on about why. But again, I want to get, get this across, Okay? Because yes, it's practical, but there's a larger picture behind it, and there's fundamental concepts that we have to embrace. You know, and, and, and I, I didn't take the time to research, and I'm sure I could. There's probably a Hindu text. I'll ask Eliezer if he can highlight a Hindu text for me that says something comparable, or a, a Buddhist text, or something, a tradition under Islam that says, you know, something similar. And, uh, and then all the skeptics will say, see, religion's all the same, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but the idea here is not only is it just a good idea to keep your mouth shut, there's reasons why, and here's the reasons why. Uh, it's the contrast between God's wisdom and the fool. It's the contrast between what it is that we're just spouting out there. Does everything have to be trumpeted? Does everything have to be spouted out there? Is it everybody's business to know about something that was done? Okay. It's probably not everybody's business. And, and the reasons why that, that private things are kept private and public things are made public and knowing the difference is, uh, is huge. Okay, uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 7 talks about that. There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. I think also there's, there's matters too about things which ought not be spoken. Okay, That there are things that we won't, don't want to think about they're not pleasant to think about. We only think about them when we're cycling the doctrine and we're processing why these unmentionable things are, are left that way. So uh, it comes down to the, to the dynamic. What glorifies Jesus Christ? What is pleasing in God's sight? What is it that you don't normally talk about but you do in an unpleasant way when you're teaching a child or when you're warning a believer, when you're... Um, when it needs to be discussed for certain reasons, but 
Otherwise, we just don't usually bring those topics up. Those are, those are realms we don't discuss because we don't think about because they don't fall under the, the Philippian mandate of let your mind dwell on these things, right? Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. And, and those are the things you want to let your mind dwell on. All this other stuff, filth and sin and darkness and whatever, no. We don't typically let our mind go to those realms, saying. So bigger principles behind keeping your mouth shut. Sometimes it's a love application. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so in love we don't blab our lips about all kinds of stuff because we're just thankful that God's a God of grace and, and we're, not, we're not covering for their sins so they can do more sin. Okay? We're, not, we're not aiding and abetting the carnality. Okay? And we're not, certainly not doing that. And we're not, uh, what's the psycho language? The, we're not, uh, um, there's a term for it when you're promoting the, the ongoing addiction. You're not enabling the sin, okay? Uh, we're not enabling the sin by helping in the cover-up. That's not the purpose. When love keeps the mouth shut, that's so that grace can, can work in the repentance, okay? We're limiting the damage so that when the real repentance happens, then we can restore the fellowship to the brother. All right. Verse 16 is very similar. Um, a fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. He might be just as angry as the fool, but the fact is that he kept his mouth shut about it. <laughs> and so there's less damage in the meantime. And he was able to maybe confess sooner, and he was able to maybe, you know, restore fellowship uh, on an easier basis. And now he may have a, a thing or two that he's got to reconcile with the brother. But he would have had a whole lot more if he would have blown up and, and let his mouth get away from him. Okay, And uh, so instead of, uh, you understand, instead of one or two people you've got to reconcile with, if you uh, just made a total donkey of yourself, uh, you may have to go and make amends with 10 or 20 or 50 people or how big can it get? Okay, So uh, a prudent man conceals dishonor and you end up, it's a blessing on the other side when it comes time to confess and be restored to fellowship and, and the applications there. Okay? Uh, did we look at the rest of these in chapter 10? Yes we did, no we didn't. Maybe not, I don't remember so let's look at it. Proverbs ten nineteen. And Even if we did it doesn't hurt us to see them again. When there are many words transgression is unavoidable but he who restrains his lips is wise. It's on a practical basis. You know, sometimes you run the risk of saying too much and just stop talking now, <laughs> okay? First roll of holes, if you're in a hole, stop digging, right? Uh, if, if you're on the verge of saying the wrong thing, just stop. Maybe you've already said too much, so just let it go right there. And, um, and, and if nothing else, you can at least let the impression go on, you know, uh, that you can give the impression that, uh, <laughs> that you know more than you do. Hey, better. And my dad used to say this: better to remain silent and appear foolish. Have you heard that before? Is that from Poor Richard's Almanac? Than to uh, than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. As soon as you open your mouth, then they know you're a fool. So just stay quiet. They'll think you're a fool, and that's better. Okay. I don't mind that. All right. Uh, eleven thirteen. Proverbs eleven thirteen. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Okay? And again, it's not for the purpose of aiding and abetting, and you're not conspiring to keep promoting somebody's sin pattern. 
All right? But what you are doing, you may, maybe you do become aware of something. And now you've got an assignment to, to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now you've got a duty to, to pray for that person. Now you've got a duty in love to not trumpet it around and spread it around. They don't need to know that. Uh, and, and probably you don't need to know that. But since you do know that, now you've got a trust. Now you've got a responsibility. What do you do with that knowledge? Okay? And how do you, uh, how do you make that application? And so uh, I like that. That's 1113. Um, he who con- is trustworthy conceals a matter. 1316. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. <coughs> Again, what's kept to yourself and what's broadcast? What is spoken and what's left unspoken? 179. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. And uh, yeah, yeah, you can uh, cause a ton of damage that way, and even good friends, you just wrecked it by, by blabbing this to that and that to this, and, and um, th- that didn't need to happen. Why did you even do that? Why did you even do that? What did that serve? Is it true? Is it necessary? Does it edify? Okay, those were uh, the rules of thumb that, that we were exposed to years ago that as far as a child training uh, recommendation. And we watched a, a couple and they had six kids, my best man at my wedding, and they had six kids and, and this is how they were raising their kids. And, you know, is it true? Is it necessary? And does it edify? And if it doesn't meet those criteria, then, then why are you saying it? Yeah, if it doesn't edify, why are you saying it? Is it necessary? Why are you saying it? Obviously, is it true? But even if it's true, it may not need to be said. Chapter, uh, still in chapter 17, verse 27 and verse 28. He who restrains his, word has no, his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. That's the background of the expression. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. So there you have it. Um, obviously, Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time for everything under the sun. And even in human viewpoint, you can appreciate the, uh, the applicability and the wisdom of this. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Got a sticky page between chapter 2 and 4. There it is. A, time, a point in time for everything and a time for every event under heaven. That is the under heaven idiom of this book. That is daily life, practical life, daily life. A time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace. Oh wow, that convicts me. And a time to shun embracing. That's me all the time. A time to search and a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to, to be silent and a time to speak. Alright? So there it is. And um, wrapping it up with a time to love and a time to hate. Ooh, that's not popular these days. We shouldn't, you know, nobody should hate. Well, this, this verse says otherwise. A time for war and a time for peace. 
Amos 5.13 tells us politically we might live in some dark days. We might live in some very dark days. And what happens if our political persuasion starts being targeted more and more for violence, more and more for, uh, for uh, open season on a particular political point of view? Do you, do you feel safe under such times? Right? Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Anyway, Amos 5.13, on an evil day, we want to stay quiet. On an evil day. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Amos 5.13. When you see the total um, breakdown on this, going back to verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. So, so much for civil authority. Um, they abhor him who speaks with integrity. You know, the honest person in public life. No point in that. It's a breakdown in culture. And authority is, is rejected and uh, integrity in, in public life is rejected. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, Though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their vine. And so they're, they're, uh, the heavy rent on the poor, this is a, uh, a breakdown in, in, the, in the culture. This is uh, um, anything goes, and that includes the manipulation of, of uh, different social classes of people and uh, victimization of, of people in your community, and you get away with it. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Not only are you manipulating the poor people of society, but governments on your side to help you do it. Therefore at such a time the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. And uh, we've had so much freedom and so much blessing since our founding and it's a good, good message to deliver on a 4th of July weekend, let me tell you. We've had such freedom, but uh, is a day coming when Christianity is going to have to go underground? Is, is a day coming when we're going to be persecuted for our belief? And are we equipped to do that? At a, such a time, a prudent person keeps silent. Yeah, I know, I'm a reactionary. I overreact. That'll never happen. Not in America. That'll never happen. 1 Peter 4, 8. I tell you, there's a Christian school now in Canada that's not allowed to teach Bible verses. And uh, if it's happening in Canada now, the courts are are banning it uh, because it's discriminatory against transgender kids and homosexual kids and everything else. That uh, whole sections of the Bible are now off limits in a Christian school in Canada. All right. 1 Peter 4, 8, above, fervent, keep, uh, above all keep fervent your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Alright, so prudence knows when to keep the mouth shut. Secondly, verse 24, the hand of the diligent will rule but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. Again, diligence always benefits. Laziness always has consequences. Every time. That's the way it normally works. That's how our world has been structured by God. 
And God himself, has, who is productive, has designed this creation to be productive. And God has designed us to image him in a productive way. And so if we are diligent, we will be productive. And diligence will always be productive. Laziness will always be counterproductive. It will be destructive. It will have its consequences. It will be consumption-oriented. And are we productive-oriented or consumption-oriented? What's it going to be? And again, we're talking, in, as Proverbs always does, in general rules of thumb, obviously there are going to be exceptions. There's going to be times when you're very diligent and yet you suffer loss anyway. But that's the exception rather than the rule. Okay? There are going to be times that you worked hard and didn't get ahead. Well, why was that? Were there other circumstances above and beyond the normal that were brought into focus? Yes, we understand that. But as a general rule, this is how the world is designed. That diligence produces. And that in that production then comes um, sovereignty. It comes ruling. What does it mean to rule? Why is it that the stewardship mandate is also a ruling mandate? And the more that you control, the more that you rule. All right, That's not wrong. That's biblical. That's by design. And so uh, when you think about What does it mean to own something? What does it mean to possess something, to control something? It means it's under your sovereignty, it's under your ownership, it's under your control. You rule it, all right? And that is a good thing. I realize there's a whole crowd now that thinks that profit is evil and all this other stuff, all right? That it's not fair if there's an unequal distribution of of wealth and as if uh, things are just handed out on on an equality basis, okay? Uh, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, and then everybody should get an equal amount of everything. Uh, and that's not how the world was designed. Okay? The, uh, the idea of what you own is what you control. And uh, theoretically, <laughs> if you are diligent about increasing your possessions, increasing your things, increasing your wealth, your portfolio, your assets, your flocks, your herds, and so forth, uh, when when your when your cattle are having babies, who's who owns those those babies? You do. It's your cattle, okay. And so when you're increasing your investments, you're increasing your investments. Who owns that increase? You do. And that's the point. And so diligence always. Uh, and so when you rule, as it says here, the hand of the diligent will rule. Those that have uh, acquired the skill, the more you do, and the better you get at something. And you've developed a uh, a, uh, a a skill set, and you've developed a uh, a uh, experience. I love experience, <laughs> don't you? Experience is learning from your mistakes. So uh, you know that's the only way to get it. But the point is, is that the better you do, the more you do. Obviously, you're going to be sought out to do more of that, to do to do that again. Uh, whereas the sluggard, on the other hand, what are his options? The unproductive, the guy that's not doing anything, what are his options? He, well, he's got fewer options. Less people are seeking him out. There's, there's less of a demand for layabouts. There's less of a demand for ne'er-do-wells, right? 
um, if, 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 they're, if they're everywhere, then they don't command a very, a very high price. That's the idea. The scarcity concept applies to labor, it applies to assets, it applies to everything. And if, if a thousand people can do what you do, then if you don't do it, there's 999 other guys that will. Okay? And so, uh, but if there's only five people that can do what you can do, and, and, and there's a scarcity, okay? That's why I don't begrudge athletes and the money they make. Because if I could do what they could do, I'd go get that money too. <laughs> All right? If I could hit those kind of home runs, I'd go get that money too. But I can't. And very few people can. That's the point. Scarcity. That's the whole point. And, and this is not just economics I'm talking about. This is salvation itself is centered on this. Because the purchase price for our redemption is the one and only Son of God. The one and only Son of God purchased what no one else could purchase. Okay? The infinite value of the one and only sacrifice. So, um, in any event, the, uh, the lazy guy, there's a thousand just like him. Okay? Or go to China, there's a million just like him. <laughs> so that's the point. And, uh, and so the slack hand... Is he ever going to rule? Is he ever going to be put in charge? You take a vagrant off the street and make him the CEO of General Motors? No. All right. Why would you do that? Why would you take anybody and, and put them in a position of trust and responsibility? There has to be that demonstration of faithfulness. This is how God works. And it always works this way. Imaging God means being productive. And uh, this is our, our blessing there. And so we have so many applications in Proverbs that address diligence and the benefits of diligence. And not only is it verse 24 here, but also verse 27. A lazy man does not roast his prey. You know, there's nothing to roast if you were too lazy to go catch it in the first place. <laughs> okay. Oh, you know. And so you go over to the, to the other guy and say, hey, what's for dinner? You know, well, what are you cooking? Okay, what did you catch last night? But the precious possession of a man is diligence. The best skill set is diligence. The best, uh, the, the best tool in your toolbox is the, the willingness to work. It's a precious possession. Uh, back to verse 11 even, an earlier verse of this chapter. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. What are you pursuing? What are you pursuing? Isn't it interesting? What tilling the land? And to me, it's extraordinary that what, what humanity has done in recent uh, centuries and even in recent decades—the advancement in, in, in ag science and the different uh, ability to get crop yields and different things—and I know a lot of that gets criticized. And there's a whole other sermon right there. But uh, what we've done with pesticides, what we've done with with um, the, uh, the, the the genetic modification on things, and that's a problem. And some people, I don't know what the science is on that, but um, it's curious to me how God designed it where we can get st- stuff this big that used to be this big. Okay? And, and I'm not of the chicken little type to scream, ooh, that's bad because of whatever. Uh, you know, show me the science, don't show me the emotionalism. Show me the reality of, uh, of how it is that we're feeding so many millions of people now with fewer and fewer people. I think it's a great thing. I think it's a marvelous thing. 
part of the creation mandate. So uh, concepts of this that were already given in chapter 10. You might recall, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, for the hand of the diligent makes rich. Not just gets rich, makes rich. Okay? Makes rich. Bill Gates is not the only Microsoft billionaire. How many more became billionaires? Okay? Anyway. Uh, makes rich. Concept there. It's always productive. 13.4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And is, is his soul made fat because he got so much? No. See, the the cruel and the, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. But see, it's the capacity of the soul that's being stressed there. I know miserable rich people. I know content poor people. Comes down to the attitude and how we're uh, walking with the Lord. So diligence always benefits. Benefits self, benefits others, glorifies God, pleases God. That's the principle. While laziness always has its consequences. Would you expect? We have a mandate to image God. And you want to be a slug. Proverbs 19.15 Laziness casts into a deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. You know, it's amazing to me, especially in America, there's no excuse. Of all the countries on this planet, there is no excuse. The three basic rules, uh, I mean, anyone, there, there is no excuse for poverty in our nation, as, as wealthy as this nation is. So, um, laziness casts into a deep sleep and an idle man will suffer hunger. 21.25 The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. You talk about night and day, there couldn't be a, a, a brighter difference between the two. And it's the desire of the sluggard that puts him to death. There's the mental attitude going in, he's already lost with the, the mental attitude of defeat before he even starts. For his hands refuse to work. Uh, chapter 22 and verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. <laughs> there's always an excuse, isn't it? You know? What lion? Yeah, oh yeah, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed in the streets. Okay. <laughs> is he still there tomorrow? Is he still there the next day? Is he still that way? Is there, you know, someone's going to do something about that lion. Why don't you go do something about that lion? I haven't tried that yet, though, calling in sick or calling in at work. and you know, There's a lion in the... <laughs> it probably works better in the ancient world. Wouldn't fly today, probably. Um, chapter... Uh, so that was 22. Chapter 24. Now in chapter 24, there's a paragraph. Verses 30 through 34. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. Okay, so there's multiple problems because this is a long-term issue. It's not just one thing. The diligent guy would have jumped on that one thing. The diligent guy wouldn't have let it become a second thing or a third thing or a fourth thing. When I saw, I reflected upon it. 
I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. It's a song we learned in chapter 6. It comes back again and again and again throughout Proverbs. It's like, how popular did this song get? Was this, a, was this sung by school kids or something? The little Hebrew kids would sing this? I don't know. It must have been pretty popular because Solomon kept using it. and uh, Even, um, I think in Hezekiah's day, they were still using it. <coughs> a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. This is the first snooze alarm. This is the first, oh, just five more minutes. Just five more minutes. Okay? And it uh, depends if your parents love you or not, if they, you know, give you the five more minutes or they kick you out of bed. No, you've had enough. Get out of bed. My dad would turn on the light switch and he would fling cats across the room. And, uh, and you know, Tommy and Heathcliff and Matt and I would have twin beds on the opposite sides of the room and dad would open the door and turn on the light and he would scream, attack cat! And he would throw the two cats across the room and and of course, cats go flying, they're going to be claws out, you know. Matt and I learned really quickly we could do a combat roll and land on the floor in the middle of the room. And Anyway, that was uh, effective. Otherwise, a little sleep, a little slumber, oh, just five more minutes more. All right. That's uh, chapter 24. We get in chapter 26. Now we're in this next section. This is in the collection that uh, there's still Solomon's Proverbs, but uh, they weren't canonized until they were collected and added to the canon during the, the uh, reign of King Hezekiah. And so in chapter 26, verses 13 through 16, the sluggard says, There is a lion in the road, a lion in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in his dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. I mean, this is how lazy do you got to be? <laughs> oh, I can't even lift one more bite to my mouth. And uh, you get your hand in the dish. Could someone please help me get this to my mouth? That's pretty lazy. Um, I'm just, it's just, man, it's tiring having to eat all this food. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. It doesn't matter. Seven guys in a row keep coming with, with doctrine, with divine viewpoint, and he's smarter than all of them. Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. Oh, that gets to the next section, sorry. 13 through 16 then. A madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death. Yeah, there's, there's a fun one. Alright, so diligence always benefits, laziness always has its consequences. And this is, this is it. This is practical, this is, this is legitimate, and I'm sure that all kinds of other religions have similar things that they say in their text. Okay? That's not the point. That there is a rationale behind these practical things that comes to the very nature of who God is, the very nature of who we are, what is expected of us in daily life, and why. Why are we expected? Why do we get married? Why do we raise children? Why do we operate in a society, in a culture? Um, what is, what is the whole point of all this? And so not just doing smart stuff in smart ways, but why? What is, uh, what is God's objective for us in our day and age, in our generation? I want to be able at the end of my life to say that I've accomplished <coughs> the purpose of God in my generation. That's the Acts 13 quote. All right? 
David, after he served the purpose of God in his generation, he was laid to, he was buried and laid to rest with his fathers. And, and uh, that's, uh, that's why we're studying Proverbs. We want to learn how to live the Word of God personally and how to live the Word of God publicly. So diligence always benefits. Thirdly now, public anxiety. Getting back to uh, Proverbs 12 and now we got verse 25. Think about what a great subdivision it is. If everybody knows how to keep their mouth shut, if everybody works hard, diligently, if um, everybody knows how to handle public anxiety. Personal and public wisdom is the antidote for personal and public anxiety. It says in verse 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Now we can take this verse personally, of course. Everybody has personal anxieties. Everyone needs a a word of encouragement every so often, every now and then. But what happens then culturally when this becomes an aspect of public application as well as personal application? What happens when anxiety is in a neighborhood's heart? Anxiety is in a city's heart? Anxiety is in a a nation's heart? Sometimes I think the anxiety and tribulation is going to come upon the whole world. We'll have an entire planet full of anxious people in the, uh, described that way in the tribulation. Well, we want to be able to have the Word of God in order to provide the guidance that addresses that anxiety. What is that anxiety anyway? But the uh, opportunity to obey the command that says don't be anxious. <laughs> okay? Uh, any anxiety that we feel becomes the testing venue whether we're going to turn our eyes to the Lord or not. Whether we're going to submit to God by faith and not experience what otherwise would be an anxious thing. <coughs> Alright. And uh, this is the first of three times I think that Proverbs is going to start to address this as far as the anxiety is concerned. A good word makes a glad. Is there ever a is there ever a time when, uh, when uh, your, your neighborhood association's in an uproar, something's happening, they don't like the city of Austin's raising a rate on something and that's just wrong? Or the, uh, the, uh, Austin's, uh, the, the public library decided to kick your neighborhood out and uh, you can't have a library card anymore uh, because your subdivision's not in the city limits, so uh, you've you got to pay $60 per person in your household. Uh, and, and no thank you, Here, you can have my card back, see you. I'm not coming back. Um, and so you get a public meeting and you get all this and, and neighbors are mad at this and that and whatever, or leash laws. I mean, it's crazy what the, the neighborhood will, will get up in arms about. And if you've ever observed, it, all it takes is a little bit of chatter and then a little bit more chatter and a little bit more chatter and it starts to build and grow and anxiety starts to grow until a word of wisdom. Okay? A good word makes it glad. And all it takes is one good word. It takes one thing to settle the whole thing and put people at ease. Just uh, as a way of application. 1523 I think addresses this also. A man has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. Okay? Okay? And do you think that depends on you? 
<laughs> no. It depends on God. God's the one that provides this apt word. God's the one that provides this kind of wisdom. And in fact, more often than not, if he, if he uses you as a tool with a timely word, that's, that's just God showing off because he didn't have to use you. And, and honestly, in most human circumstances, I usually think of the best thing to say about three hours later. I, I go home and I'm replaying something in my head. I go, oh man, I should have said that. You know? And my humanity is constantly you know, rehashing old discussions and things I could have said better. But th- that's the whole point. Is that the timeliness of it, the, 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 the tool in God's hand, the right believer at the right place at the right time saying the right thing is probably not from you anyway. And, uh, and, and uh, if you've ever had those kind of moments and, and, and you remember a verse, you're not sure why you remember that verse, and why did that pop into my head? And I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but it was just, it was the right verse at the right time for the right person. And that's all the Holy Spirit, that's not you. That's, that's a beautiful thing when you can allow God to use you in those uh, type of circumstances. So yeah, verse 23 is, uh, is great when you realize it's not up to you to, uh, to make that happen. It is up to you though to be humble before God, to be willing to be used by Him, to say, here I am, send me. You know, to go into a hospital room thinking, I don't know what I'm going to say to this person. But you pray about it and you tell the Father, Father, I just want to be a comfort. I want to be an encouragement. I don't know what to say. I don't know what I can say, okay? Um, this, is, this is a horrible situation. I never dealt with this before. Father, what am I going to say? They're going to expect me to say something biblical and smart and pastorly. And I, I'm, Father, I don't know. I don't know what to say. And so you're humble and you pray about it. And, um, and then you minister and you, you sit with them and you pray with them and, and whatever. And then you leave thinking it was horrible thinking, man, that, that, what a waste of time. I was useless. Okay? Just totally beating yourself up because nothing happened until the next day or the day after, or a week later, and then they say, you know, that meant so much to me. Thank you for coming by. And, and that, that you encouraged me more. And, and I'm like, really? Are you kidding? How? I could have gone in there wearing a clown suit and juggling something and done better than... What was... Uh, what was and I have no memory of, of saying anything deep or, or appropriate or anything. But the Holy Spirit used that. It's an amazing thing how He does. So there's that. Chapter 16 and verse 24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Okay? And uh, what a blessing. Personal public wisdom. And so it may be, and this is maybe is the flip side from two verses ago, there's a time to keep your mouth shut, there's a time to say something, and even if you're not sure, there is a time to speak. And if you're the tool in God's hands and you have a word of wisdom right there, then that's exactly what they need at that moment. It's healing to the bones. It's, uh, it's uh, a pleasant word, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Now, the ultimate ex- uh, global expression of this principle is going to be achieved by Jesus Christ in the second advent. Like I say, the tribulation is going to be global anxiety. The tribulation, you, you think it's crazy now. There's a hysteria now that's convinced that, you know, we're going to ruin the environment, we're going to destroy the world, and on and on and on. This is nothing compared to the hysteria that will happen when the restraint is gone and Satan uh, gives the whole planet his strong delusion. We're going to have a, a global population of, of, of uh, chicken littles everywhere. 
that are going to be enslaved to Antichrist and and, uh, and that. Anyway, here comes, uh, here comes the glory of Jesus Christ. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Let's see, there's only 10 verses. Verse 7, the scorched land will become a pool. (coughs) The thirsty ground, springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go upon it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. All right, we're not there yet. (laughs) We're not living there yet. We're not in millennial Christianity yet. But this is promised. And this this is the ransom, this is the rescue. This is the encouragement that can be offered to believers in the tribulation that there will be a highway, there will be a rescue. And uh, the, the Savior is on the way, so hold on. So imagine on a global scale. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. And, and, and really it's kind of a simple message, isn't it? You know, you and I can on a much smaller scale we can, come, uh, we can encourage anybody with this. Anything you're struggling with, hey, take courage. You know, Jesus Christ controls history. God's in charge. You know what? God loves you. He's got a purpose for why this is happening in your life. He's got a provision for you. And, uh, and you know, just remind, uh, take courage and fear not. God's got a plan. He knows what He's doing. We don't see that plan yet, but that's all right. This is, this is our chance to, to walk by faith and not by sight. This is our chance to trust in Him. And uh, we, can, we can laugh about it afterwards. We can, so let's start laughing about it now. Okay? You know? Um, man, think about it. We'll be like Sarah and Abraham. Wow, we're going to have a baby. Okay? So laugh about it. So this is amazing. How's this going to happen? I don't know how it's going to happen. My humanity can't see an answer. But there's going to be an answer. It's going to be fun to watch. So let's just start laughing about it now. Righteous living under wisdom. Let's look at verse 26. The neighbor is a guide, or I'm sorry, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. And so, uh, again, I think we, we have this idea about giving a good word, being a guide, being a source of wisdom. Personal wisdom can become public wisdom with, between you and your neighbor. Righteous living under wisdom provides an example for others to follow. 
a gracious alternative to the example set by our enemies. And so you realize that peer pressure can uh, work both ways. <laughs> In a positive godly way, the righteous can live their life as an example and, and demonstration, and then the opposite, of course, to what the unbiblical lifestyle is doing. Hmm. I think um, we're going to get a whole dose of this in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to get the recognition that, uh, that there's two examples to follow and you want to follow the godly example, you want to follow the biblical example, not the alternative. Philippians three seventeen through 19. And isn't it interesting how we are imitative? Again, I think that's by design. God uh, designed humanity to be... Um, Mimics, copycats. That's how we learn, that's how we live. Not just children, but even uh, adults will start to compete against one another and copy one another. And, you know, your neighbor's got the latest and greatest. You've got to compete with the Joneses and get the latest and the greatest. And, and I mean, any number of things. The, the, the nature of humanity, which God designed to be imitative for our blessing, uh, becomes, um, you know, lustful and covetous in our, in our, carnality, right? Become fallen humanity becomes very uh, competitive and, and imitative in, in negative ways. But Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And so while you're learning the Word of God, you're growing, you're learning biblical principles, but you're also in a community. You're in a body of believers. You've got brothers and sisters around, including older brothers and sisters. And you can watch, and you can learn by example. And you can see, and you may not understand everything, or you may not understand a whole lot. But you're watching and you're seeing, wow, the Word of God is working in this person's life. You're watching by example. And so you can follow that example. Let us therefore, as, uh, uh, let's see, and then the warning in verse 18, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There's another crowd out there and you don't want to be following that example. So follow the right example and be aware that there's a wrong example out there and see it for what it is. Don't copy it, don't imitate it, but watch it. See it for what it is and observe what the end of that walk is because they're enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. See where that goes. And ask yourself, do I want to go there? <laughs> ask yourself, why? That's not necessary. That's not necessary. So, um, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. All day long they're just feeding their appetite. Food, alcohol, sex, money, possessions, things, whatever. All kinds of appetites out there. And uh, they worship it like it's an idol. Whose glory is in their shame. <laughs> They've turned what should be shameful into a pride march. And they're, they're, they're pleased, they're happy about it. They want you to celebrate what they're celebrating. And you're looking at it and saying, that's called sin. Who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven. And so uh, we, if we have the right mindfulness, if we're oriented to truth, we're not going to follow that wrong example. But you notice it is an example to follow. And it says there are many. 
many walk, of whom I often told you. When one starts going that way, then start watching others follow after. When Satan fell, a third of the angels followed after him. His, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. He was just the first to express his own I wills in opposition to God, but a third of the angels went with him. And they all started doing their own I wills. They all made their own choices to follow after Satan. And so we have the example there. Finally, the way of righteousness is life. The way of righteousness is life. We already talked about laziness in verse 27, so we've covered that already. Verse 28, in the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. We have... uh, a description here that I think is, is a useful uh, verse. I've been trying to collect a, an assortment of verses for Old Testament soteriology, passages that we might use to understand the nature of evangelism in the Old Testament, the nature of how um, uh, life and death could be communicated in this way. When Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again, Nicodemus acted like he didn't know what he was talking about. Like, what are you talking about? What, what is that? How, how can, I'm, I'm an old man. I can't crawl into my mother's womb and be born again a second time, can I? And, and Nicodemus, one of the Bible teachers of Israel, was clueless when Jesus said, you must be born again. But he shouldn't have been. He absolutely should not have been. Jesus made that statement in John 3 as if uh, evangelism was a normal thing in the Old Testament. And you want to know why I think Jesus had that attitude? Because I believe evangelism was a normal thing in the Old Testament, right? I believe that from Adam to, to, uh, to the church age, that there was evangelism going on. I believe there was evangelism going on on the very first day when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. There was evangelism going on. There's always been evangelism going on. The, the problem is, is that, I say a problem, we struggle in our day and age because we don't see, um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We don't have an Acts 16.31 in the Old Testament, right? And that bothers, that bothers some folks. It shouldn't, but it does. So that's what I'm working on. I've got a project now. I'm working on finding passages like this one, like Proverbs 8, like other passages, whereby I believe we've got a gospel text. We've got a verse that parents would use to lead their children to Christ, that a neighbor would use to lead his unbeliever to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in a prophetic way, looking forward to the coming Messiah. They don't know the name Jesus. They don't know uh, the history of, of when he died on the cross. But they do know that a Messiah is coming to crush the serpent's head. They do know that a Messiah is coming to do away with sin. When, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did he know that? Okay? What was the gospel doctrine that they understood as Old Testament believers? What was the doctrine that went with the sin offering, trespass offering, guilt offering, all of the the Levitical offerings? See? So we have a concept here. In the way of righteousness is life. Okay? And this talks about our positional truth and our experiential truth. The fact that we receive life when we believe, okay, but then we continue to walk in, a, in, a, in the newness of life. We continue to walk 
on that basis. So it's called the way of righteousness is ongoing, continual, experiential life. There's a lot of people, living people that have biological life, but they don't have spiritual life. Or maybe they are spiritually alive, but they're operationally dead. They're not disciples. They're not growing in the Word of God. They're not walking in fellowship. Yeah, they're going to go to heaven when they die, but they're already dead today as far as their carnality, walking in operational darkness. Their heart is hardened. Their foolish heart is darkened. Is it, is it a consolation that they're going to go to heaven when they die? Sure. But in the meantime, what's the difference between them and an unbeliever? They're walking in death. They're not glorifying Jesus Christ. They're not pleasing to the Father. So uh, they're that prodigal son living out there with the pigs. They're not where they should be and they're not doing what they should be doing. They're still sons though, that's the point. Okay, They can come back to the Father's house anytime. So in the way of righteousness is life. And in its pathway there is no death. Again, we're going to handle. I'll come back to this next week, and we'll we'll expand on it, and I'll show you the, uh, these other texts that I've been using, and want to continue using related to Old Testament soteriology. All right, but the idea is that there is a a reception of life, and then there's the living it out, and we understand that from a New Testament view. I think we can prove it, demonstrate it also from an Old Testament view as well, that we receive life, and then we want to live it out, and to do so on a basis that is uh, pleasing in the eyes of. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, from an Old Testament perspective. All right? Does that make sense? You're looking at me with everybody. <laughs> that squinty eye that says, What's he talking about? All right, Lord willing, rapture pending. We'll come back and touch on this again next week, and then we'll get our first look at chapter 13. A wise son. So, a good start to chapter 13. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your grace and, and glory. I pray that you would help us to understand these concepts. So many of these verses, they just preach themselves anyway, Father. Uh, we don't want to be lazy, and uh, we want to tell the truth, and we want to not be caught up in our neighborhood anxiety, Father. And we, want to, we want to be sources of stability. We want to be positive examples. So many of these things, Father, um, they apply no matter what neighborhood we live in, and we can apply them in our families and in our church families. Um, some of the deeper things, Father, I pray that you'll help us to understand the, uh, the real issue. is What, what, what help does it ha- come if we have secular details? Great, but we're not saved, Father. So yes, we want to understand Old Testament soteriology. We want to teach these principles as well. And uh, remind ourselves, Father, that we do what we do not because it's practical and right, We do what we do because we are your children. And in this, the outworking of this new life, there is uh, a corresponding walk that is fitting, that is appropriate, that is designed for the new walk that we have in Christ. And so open our eyes to that truth as well. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.